Krishna, Lord Krishna brought three extraordinary um, factors together to launch his movement in this world. Of course, Lord Krishna, Lord Chaitanya. One is that um, <clears throat> Lord Krishna, <clears throat> or in this form of Mahaprabhu, literally intervened in human history. This is a topic actually among theologians. Does God actually intervene directly in human history? And of course, those who are not so spiritual prefer that he not. Just like when kids are playing, they don't want their parents to come and ruin the game. And so, But actually, the fact is that Lord Krishna does intervene in human history, and God help us if he didn't. So, as we know, Nagaputni knows very well, and I know very well, that in the late 1960s, one could say, just about the time that Prabhupada came, um, something extraordinary happened in the Western world that had really never happened before. And, and that is that Western people became fascinated with, especially young people, uh, Indian spirituality. And if you study the uh, thousands of years of history of, of contact between South Asia, Bharat Varsha, and uh, the Western world, and there is a history actually, going back to the Greek ambassador Megasthenes, who wrote a book about India about 2300 years ago, and describes many amazing things. Even, of course, that was already 2700 years into Kali Yuga, but still. So that, I mean, people have known about that. The Greeks, Alexander the Great, for example, we know that he won a battle against a King Puru in what is now Pakistan and wanted to go on into India, but his, his men, his Greek army, revolted and said, you know, we've been away from our families for years, and they'd heard that India is a very big country with very big armies, and they just said, we're done. And so Alexander was forced to go back, and of course on the way he eventually died in Babylonia. But, but still there was a Greek presence. The Greek presence remained in northwest India for a few centuries. And that's a whole other story, and the actual Greek influence on Indian culture. So it's a very interesting story, there was an influence. But, um, so what I mean to say is whether it's Megasthenes or whether it's Alexander and Alexander's successors in India or, uh, for example, Europe entered into these dark ages where knowledge, although the Romans had done commerce with India, actually, and traded with India, the Roman Empire, but by the time you get to the dark ages uh, and even up until the Renaissance, people in the West were so ignorant of India was so ignorant of India that people in Europe believed it was just a commonly held belief that uh, India was a Christian nation. And the reason was because uh, there was, a, there was a, I guess, a story, a myth that one of the apostles, an apostle named Thomas, just had gone to India and, of course, converted everybody because people tend to exaggerate the stories of their saints. And so... And so when Vasco da Gama, who, who he actually sailed to India and he landed in India, and that's why you have Goa, 
That's why you have that Portuguese influence in Goa. And this was about 500 years ago. And he thought India was a Christian nation. So near the coast there, they came upon a, a temple to Durga, you know, to Shakti. And he thought it was a temple to the Virgin Mary. So they began, you know, all these rough Portuguese. The Renaissance had not reached Portugal. They were still kind of medieval. And so they were worshiping in this Durga temple, thinking it was to the Virgin Mary. When they found out what it really was, of course, they just kind of, you know, started killing people and destroying things in the best medieval fashion. But so, but what I mean to say is that what happened when Prabhupada came, for, and, and then of course you have the English presence in India, not only the, 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 the uh, English, British East India Trading Company, there was the French East India Trading Company, there was the Dutch East India Trading Company. But when Prabhupada came, something new that had never happened. We can trace the history of the relationship between Europe or the West and India for thousands of years and something new happened. People in the West became fascinated, especially young people, became fascinated with Indian spirituality. Whether it was the Beatles going to Rishikesh or you know, Jimi Hendrix, everyone had to have a guru. And even though in the early 20th century you have let's say, the whole theosophy movement and Madame Blavatsky and all these people. But it was kind of like an elite thing. It was just for certain sort of liberal, intellectual Americans. It wasn't something that was for people in general or young people in general. So Krishna did something. Krishna did something just before Prabhupada came, which had never happened before in thousands of years. And that is people in the West became obsessed, you can say young people are fascinated with Indian spirituality, everybody had to have a guru and um, so Naga, you remember that, I mean what it was like when I used to go and sell books on college campuses in 1972 after I took Sanyas at the uh, mature and experienced age of 23 I took Sanyas actually about 6 or 7 years before my brain was fully formed, I mean neurologically speaking, but anyway, that explains some things, so I remember we used to go on college campuses around America and you'd look at the activities board where they put up little flyers that was pre-digital. And, um, you know, half of the flyers were some, this guru or that guru. So Krishna did that. He created this unprecedented interest in Indian spirituality. And then, as Prabhupada himself used to say, Krishna sprinkled past life devotees around the world. And of course, if you know your Bhagavad Gita in chapter 6, toward the end of chapter 6 of the Gita, Krishna says that when someone is just spontaneously attracted to Krishna or to Bhakti Yoga, as so many people were back then, it's not a Gyata Sukriti, it's not that they accidentally did something, but Krishna says it's because of their previous life. Krishna says, Purvabhyasena Tenaiva, it's by their previous practice and by that alone, by that alone. He says that levate, that buddhi yogam levate porvadehikam, that one re recovers or regains buddhi yoga, this spiritual understanding, which is porvadehikam, which is from their previous body. And so Prabhupada used to say that, that Krishna put devotees, and then the third thing Prabhupada did, uh, Krishna did, 
which made the other two useful or meaningful, is that he sent a great pure devotee from the spiritual world. And uh, Prabhupada personally revealed to me, privately, in his room in L.A., that he was never conditioned. That he was never conditioned. He said that he told me there was never a time when I did not know Krishna as my Lord. And then he said, you understand, and repeated it. So, so I got my facts straight. But what I wanted to say is that um, none of those, superficially you could say, none of those three factors of having this Krishna suddenly making the Western world interested in Indian spirituality, sprinkling devotees around, and then sending a Mahabhagavat, sending a uh, truly extraordinary liberated soul to... Uh, take advantage of those two facts and do the needful. And that's actually what Prabhupada did. So, my the way Prabhupada trained me, as far as I know, and this is a, a, a sort of very lamentable fact, is that I think I'm the last active preacher in ISKCON that was trained by Prabhupada as a Western GBC. Personally trained by Prabhupada as a Western GBC. And so Prabhupada used to confide in me and, and just tell me things about his vision. And um, I know when I went to be a secretary in Mayapur in 1976, the month before the annual festival, the Brooklyn Festival, he actually never gave me any secretarial work. He just liked me to sort of hang out and there were things he wanted to tell me. And um, so Prabhupada wanted... As I put it, Prabhupada came to this world for only one reason, and that is to save it. He had no other interest. Prabhupada had remarkably little interest in this world. After all, you know, if you have a higher taste, if you're coming from Krishna Loka, this world's a really tough sell. I mean, it's, as we know, the material world is really overrated. And if you have a higher taste, then... So Prabhupada was just remarkably uninterested in the world. I mean, you know, he found certain things like curious or technology, but basically his only interest in this world was how to save it by spreading Lord Chaitanya's movement. That's really ultimately the only serious interest he had in this world. And so because he trained us that way or trained me that way, and I never got the cucumber talk. You know, where Prabhupada said, like, you're trying to sell a diamond, you get very few customers if you're selling cucumbers. I assume that in Bengali, the word for cucumber and the word for diamond are very similar. And so it kind of, you know, it's kind of a, it's a fun saying in Bengali. <laughs> if you say cucumbers and diamonds in English, it's like, what? I mean, you understand, one is, especially back then, because back then in Bengal, I mean, you get a whole huge basket of vegetables for literally pennies. And so, um, the Prabhupada was a, was, a, was a loving spiritual father. He was a loving spiritual father. I remember in 1970 when I first, when he called for me actually, and uh, he wanted to see me because he heard what I was doing. So, I was just a young, I'd just been in the movement like, I guess about 
less than six months and Prabhupada heard what I was preaching, he said, I want to see him. So But I remember what and then that's when they just when they first moved into Watsika Avenue in Temple in Los Angeles, they just moved in and it was it was a wonder to be there. I mean, because Prabhupada personally like chose the color for the curtains and the, the altar curtain, the window curtains and the floor and it was beautiful. It was this beautiful, beautiful temple that Prabhupada personally designed. And then, of course, the devotees showed their appreciation for this by ripping it apart and moving the deities. But anyway, so, um, another story for another time. But, uh, so Prabhupada, they moved into that new temple, and, um, of course, Prabhupada wanted to make, make that temple his, his headquarters. And he really had a vision. I mean, Prabhupada's vision is not a secret. It's not like some secret knowledge I have. All you have to do, if you want to know what Prabhupada was really about, what he was really about, uh, just re just think about his pranam mantra. You know, they say if everything else fails, read the instructions. And so if you just look at Prabhupada's pranam mantra, so let's, the, the one he wrote, the, the one first one, Namo Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya, was sort of a template for Gaudiya Vaishnava gurus, Nataya Bhakti Siddhanta, and you just put in your guru's name. And so Prabhupada, so we first used that. When I first joined the movement, that was the only Pranam mantra. And then Prabhupada gave us another Pranam mantra, which, which he wrote, because there was no one else to do it. And, uh, and so that mantra that's not sort of a, a very beautiful but standard template for offering obeisances to one's guru, but the one that Prabhupada really wrote about himself is, I think without question, Prabhupada revealing, for those who pay attention, what he's really doing. And so if you if we go over that pranam mantra, namo, uh, namaste saraswati devi, the first thing Prabhupada does, as a perfect Vaishnava gentleman, the first thing he does is identifies himself, I am the servant of my spiritual master, Saraswati Tapu. So the first line of the four lines, Prabhupada identifies himself as a servant of his guru. Namaste Saraswati Devi. And so what in general is his mission? What is his service? Uh, Gauravani Pracharine spreading, preaching the message of Lord Chaitanya. So he identifies that I'm the servant of my guru and my mission is to spread the teachings of Lord Chaitanya. However, there were actually, especially back then when Prabhupada wrote this mantra, there were many dozens of Vaishnavas uh, to whom that, those first two lines equally corresponded. There were, you know, quite a number, dozens of disciples of uh, Bhakti Siddhanta still active, and they were preaching, with obviously different results, but they were preaching. They were preaching, Gauravani Pracharni, in their own way. And so the first two lines identify Prabhupada, he explains himself, who I am, what I'm doing, but it's a general definition that applied to dozens of people who were alive back then. So then in the next two lines, Prabhupada explains what distinguishes him. 
Prabhupada explains things that only apply to him and don't apply to the other active disciples of Bhakti Siddhanta. Where he says, Nirvishesha Shunivari Paschatyadisha Tarine. Tarine means uh, it comes from the Sanskrit root, which means to cross. And therefore, for example, you have the word Tara, which means crossing, also means star, but it, but in this case, from this root, it means crossing. And so, um, so for example, in Sanskrit, Ava, the prefix Ava means downward. So literally, the down crosser, one who crosses down, is Avatara. Avatar. And because the avatara is someone who's on the spiritual level and literally avatara downcrosses or descends, to use a more normal English word, descends to this world to, to save it. That's where you get, so tara, the word avatara, downcrosser. And then tari means one who is bringing others across. Like, for example, in Sanskrit, the word tari, from the same root, tari, means uh, a raft, or a little boat. So if you're crossing a river, you use a tari. So the idea is that tarine, ne, the, the a at the end, tarine, means unto, because obeisance is unto the one who is literally bringing across from the material realm to the spiritual realm, in that sense, saving Paschatyadesha, the Western lands, which are uh, characterized by Nirvishesha Shunyavadi. Uh, so I'll explain the word Nirvishesha. This is okay, isn't it? Naga, I'm explaining this mantra. I hope I'm not off target here. No, please. It's, uh, it's interesting. Go ahead. So in Sanskrit, the word Vishesha means distinct, just like the word Visheshana means an adjective. Because the function grammatically of an adjective is to distinguish among objects. For example, if you say the house, like go to the house, which house? The big house, the small house, the blue house, the white house. And so an adjective distinguishes between objects, which one of a certain category. And so nirvishesha means literally something in which there are, are not proper distinctions. And so the distinctions, I, I wrote a whole paper on this a few months ago. If you look at the Shastras, if you look at the Bhagavatam, if you look at the Chaitanya Charitamrita, if you look at Prabhupada's teachings, if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says, you know, the famous verse, Tadvidhi Pranipatena, try to learn the truth, you know, or actually it's literally just the command, Vidhi. It's from the same verb you get the word Veda, knowledge. Vidhi means know, the command know. Tadvidhi, know this. And uh, by approaching those who know, and Krishna says that what we translate as seers of the truth, the actual word in Sanskrit is tattva darshina. So tattva is a Sanskrit word which means a real object. 
I mean, I won't go into all the grammar, all the way by the very interesting, but it's it's tut, which is that, and twa, thatness. In other words, being so, a real object that you can point out. It's a, dem- tut, it's a demonstrative pronoun, like on tutsa. So tatwa is a fundamental category of real things, of things that actually exist. So that, for example, there's Vishnu tatwa, or Jiva tatwa, which means a fundamental category, which is the Jiva, the the, the, the real category of Jiva, the real category of God, of Vishnu, and so on. So nirvishesha, meaning not making or unable to make distinctions, means one who cannot understand tattva. Namely, there is God, there is the soul, and there is nature. So if you think, I am this body, it is a category mistake. You have confused two tattvas. You've confused prakriti tattva and jiva tattva. Or if someone is just sort of, you know, lunatic and thinks I am God, then uh, they've confused Vishnu tattva and jiva tattva. Or if you think Krishna has a material body, you've confused uh, Ishwara tattva with Prakriti tattva and so on. So people cannot properly distinguish between the fundamental categories of real things are called nirvishesha bodies such as the impersonalists. And shunya, of course, uh, means the void or emptiness. So, so Prabhupada came, in his own words, to save, to bring across to the spiritual side um, the Western countries, which are unable to make fundamental distinct, distinctions about real things, and which are bewildered by the idea that there's no God. Or there's an, as Krishna says, Krishna actually talks about this in chapter 16 of the Gita as the view of the Asuras, where they say they say that this world is un-Ishwara, there's no Ishwara, asatyam, there's no ultimate truth. So that's how Prabhupada saw himself. That's what he thought he was doing. And so based on Prabhupada's instructions to me, repeated instructions to me, um, I have to either successfully be his instrument to rebuild the powerful, relevant mission he, he created in the Western world, or die trying. And um, to me, there's, there's just nothing else to do. I mean, if I do something else, I'm just not paying attention. So, I would like to say something else about Prabhupada, if I may. And Naga's going to keep, as we prearrange, keep putting coins in the slot to keep me speaking. And that is that um, um, if you look at the structure of, say, Chaitanya Leela, uh, Krishnas Kaviraj divides it into Adi Leela, Madhya Leela, and Antilila, which just means the first pastimes, the middle pastimes, and the final pastimes. So, remarkably, if you look at Chaitanya Lila within this structure, uh, a Chaitanya Lila exactly corresponds to Krishna Lila. Even though in the Bhagavatam we don't find that terminology, but we absolutely find the same idea. Because Clearly, Adi Leela is Vrindavan Leela. 
And if you study Vrindavan Leela and Navadvip Leela, the Lord Chaitanya, they're very similar. Because in both cases, you find the Supreme Lord who has come to this world ultimately to intervene in geopolitical history, religious history, and basically transform the world. It's actually what Christians would call in their jargon an apocalyptic event. Uh, the word apocalypse comes from the Greek and it literally means to discover or uncover. And so the idea is that the world's going so badly that God is just going to, you know, hit the reboot. He's going to He's going to reboot human history, and okay, and 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 you know, and start humanity on a new track. And that's exactly what Krishna says he's going to do in the Gita. Paritanaya sadhunam, in order to save good people, vinashaya chaduskritam, in order to you know, red card or you know, remove, remove the bad people. People are doing bad things, and dharma sanstapanartai, in order to re-establish actual justice, actual spiritual principles. Uh, Krishna says, Sambhavam Yuge Yuge, I come in every age. And that's basically the notion of the apocalypse. In, I mean, anyway, that's Middle Eastern history. So, uh, Krishna, both in Vrindavan Leela, which is, is, is the Adi Leela 5,000 years ago, and in uh, Navadviv Leela, in Chaitanya Leela, what happens is beautiful and loving and intimate. We find the Lord with his family, with his friends growing up. It's, it's the most endearing pastimes, but it doesn't have much geopolitical effect. It's just, it's like Krishna first just displays very intimate pastimes, especially for the devotees, in Navadweep and also in Vrindavan, and having done that, he kind of, so to speak, gets down to business. And so you find Lord Chaitanya taking sannyas, because otherwise people back then would not give you the time of day. And so he takes sannyas, and Krishna leaves Vrindavan. And so Krishna obviously appeared as a Kshatriya, Lord Chaitanya, that same Krishna, appearing as Lord Chaitanya, appeared as a Brahmana, but they both leave their home, where they have their family and their friends and their intimate pastimes. They leave that, and they both, that's the same person, but in both incarnations, the Lord goes out into the world just to take care of business, which is rearranging human history. And so then, in, for example, Madhya Leela, you find Lord Chaitanya personally preaching personally traveling and leading kirtans and debating impersonalists and, and you know, personally being an, a, an ideal Krishna conscious preacher. Similarly, because that's what Brahmins do. Brahmins destroy ignorance by their preaching. Kshatriyas destroy ignorance by actually killing people. And so 5,000 years ago, you have Krishna in his Madhya Leela, and that's exactly what it is, personally killing demons. You know, he kills Kangsa, and, and then all kinds of people. There was a, a waiting list, like, please kill me, Krishna. And so, 
So they were, Krishna's killing these demons, but then there's an antilila. In Lord Chaitanya's case, he delegates the traveling and preaching to his great devotees, and he retires to Puri. Krishna, in, and, and it's interesting, that Krishna book, or, or the 10th canto, I should say, the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam ends with the end of Krishna's Madhyalila. And that's why the 10th canto ends there, because after killing Shalva, sort of like the mad aviator, after Krishna kills Shalva, um, he no longer kills demons. For example, he's in the, Krishna's driving Arjuna's chariot in Kurukshetra, where there's heads are rolling by the hundreds of thousands, and uh, he doesn't kill anybody. Krishna, you know, at one point he gets off his chariot and he tells, you know, he, he makes it clear to Bhishma, don't even think about it. And then Bhishma kind of says, and that's a whole other story, like what's happening in Bhishma's life. That's a whole other story, but... But if you think about it, Kurukshetra, millions of people are dying and Krishna doesn't kill anyone. So he's retired from personally killing demons. Just as Lord Chaitanya has retired from killing illusion as a Brahmin does it by preaching. And so the reason I mentioned all that, because there is an exact parallel between Krishna Leela and Chaitanya Leela divided into these three stages. And the reason I mention all that is because in Prabhupada's own life, in Prabhupada's own missionary activities, I believe there's something similar. And so if you look at the early days of the Hare Krishna movement, Prabhupada's in New York, and of course he goes briefly to Montreal, and then he goes to San Francisco, you know, just the amazing pastimes on the West Coast, and then Prabhupada goes down to Los Angeles, and somehow people don't talk about those as much. Somehow the San Francisco Leela in the very beginning, maybe it's because Haight-Ashbury, it gets a lot of this compressed. But actually, if you look at Prabhupada in L.A., it's amazing. I mean, how many people are joining in all the programs he's doing. And, and eventually it grows into the Discon World Headquarters. So Prabhupada's Los Angeles pastimes are, are, are quite amazing. But what I want to say is, if you look at those pastimes, the relationship of Prabhupada with his disciples is much more intimate. Basically, almost all the devotees in the Hare Krishna movement know Prabhupada personally and have had conversations with Prabhupada. And he knows them. He knows them. And um, it's very intimate. Prabhupada is worshipped, as he should be, as Krishna's emissary from the spiritual world, but not mythologized. Worship but not mythologize. For example, I found Mukunda Goswami's book, What is a Miracle on Second Second Avenue, I think, to be um, enlightening. And also another book which I found really enlightening, I have to say, is a book written by our god sister Mula Prakriti, where she wrote about Prabhupada before he came to the West. And, and, and Mula Prakriti, of course, she passed away too early, but she interviewed all the people she could find that had known Prabhupada, including many Gaudiya Math members and other people. And if you read that book, which I think should be read much more, or if you read Mukunda's book, you find a Prabhupada who is um, much more in terms of the, his role of a classic saint, 
in the sense that he's not trying to tell everybody everything about material things. He's actually trusting his Western disciples to come up with effective preaching strategies, but everyone knows he's the pure soul. He is the one who knows Krishna. And that's obvious to everybody, as it should have been. And yet Prabhupada is doing what he really always wanted to do. And that is, he's letting his disciples figure out strategies. You know, he he's the, what do you call it, the, uh, the boundary maintainer. I mean, you know, if, if the disciples go over a line, he says, no, you crossed the line, come back. Like if they have some idea to preach, which is a little over the line. So Prabhupada's just, he's doing boundary maintenance. He's keeping people, but within that, like Vishnu Janna in Los Angeles, coming up with amazing ideas for Sunday festivals. And, uh, you know, different devotees in different places doing things, and Prabhupada's keeping the bound, keeping all his kids within the boundaries, but encouraging their creativity, encouraging them to, encouraging them to figure out how to spread the movement in their country. And, um, to give one example, when Prabhupada made me the, the trustee of the uh, Spanish Portuguese BBT, and there was a rule in the BBT coming from Prabhupada that the Bhagavatam could not be printed softcover, only hardcover. And Prabhupada himself gave that rule. But I was preaching in Latin America, third world countries. It was really the first time in ISKCON history that we, I mean, apart from India, which is like in its own category, but uh, that we really spread the movement widely in, in third world countries. And so I knew that in order to sell lots of books, and that was my focus, uh, you know, we have to print Bhagavatam softcover. So I did. And then I mentioned to Prabhupada, he said, oh, that's great, you know. So, so Prabhupada really trusted us in that way. And then we had the book distribution revolution. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying, though, that ISKCON grew so quickly. ISKCON grew so quickly that within literally a couple of years, you went from a movement where everybody knows Prabhupada and probably, you know, most devotees have had a conversation with Prabhupada, certainly written to him. And Prabhupada is a very real, enlightened being. But he's also, I mean, very human. Not in the sense of being a conditioned soul, but in the sense of, you know, we're human. Actually, technically, we're not human either. But what I mean to say is because we are in this human condition until we, you know, make more advance, especially back then, and Prabhupada was really right there with us. He was right there with us. He was... It's like, for example, if you... It's famous that in the Old Testament, um, you, can, you can distinguish different historical periods of the Old Testament because it's actually sort of like a Jewish anthology where they just put all their history in. And so you have parts of the New Testament written 3,000 years ago, written 2,000 years ago, when they have very different ideas. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. But, but for given example, th there's sort of this time in early Old Testament history, which I compare to this first stage with Prabhupada, which I call Prabhupada's Adi Lila. And that is that the relationship with God is very intimate. It's like a family relationship. The Garden Eden is just, you know, God has this beautiful garden and his devotees kind of walk around the garden until they break the rules and they have to leave. But, or, for example, uh, Rebecca the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Isaac's wife was named Rebecca. And so when she's pregnant, she's having a difficult pregnancy, so she just goes and talks to God about it. Like, hey God, you know, 
exactly the way, let's say, a girl who's pregnant and suffering would just go talk to her father. Or go talk to her father. So there's a very intimate, immediate relationship with God. And that's like an earlier stage of, New, of Old Testament history. And so there was a stage with Prabhupada where, to give an example, when I joined the movement in 69, I was a student at Berkeley. And uh, I didn't know whether I should stay in college or not, so I went to the temple president, who was Hansa Duda, and he said, I don't know, ask the regional secretary, who was a brahmachari named Tamal Krishna. So I went and asked Tamal Krishna brahmachari, and he said, I don't know, ask Prabhupada. So it was like that, I was like, I don't know, ask Prabhupada. So, so I wrote a letter to Prabhupada, and Prabhupada wrote back to me and said, yes, stay, I want you to get your education so you can preach to educated people. And so... For me, when I read Mukunda's book, when I read even Mula Prakriti's book, which you see Prabhupada as this amazing, this perfect sadhu who gives candy to the children, who worships Rupa Goswami in ex with ecstatic tears and lamentation, who's humble, who just, you know, is, is so strict, just, just a... You couldn't ask for a better Vaishnav saint. He's just, and he, of course, no one knows who he is. Everyone respects him because he's strict. And no one really knows who he is. But he just, he shows this perfect example of kindness, of gentleness, of learning, of deep, deep devotion. And, but he's, and then, of course, suddenly, as Prabhupada in his own words, he revealed to some of his old friends in Calcutta, because they then, they were speaking Bengali, and Lakshmi was there, and then she asked them, what did Prabhupada say? And she said that Prabhupada said that his movement was going so, fra so fast, he was like, he was startled, and he didn't expect it, and he was just sort of trying to keep things under control, especially because he had experience that sometimes his own disciples could betray him. And so you get, so you go to this ISKCON in a very short time, where a strong majority of members of ISKCON have never had a conversation with Prabhupada. They never actually talked to him personally. And it's funny because, and, and, and that, if, if you know the sociology of religion, that, that had a very powerful effect, which wasn't altogether problem. But anyway, um, the great equalizer, like the great opportunity was the morning walk. Because, like in class, you could maybe try to ask a question. If it was a stupid question, Prabhupada would let you know if that's a stupid question. And so that was kind of, you know, you could take your chances. And um, but on the morning walk, you know, everybody's sort of walking. Prabhupada is more casual. He's often joking and just kind of talking about things. And, and so you find young devotees sort of, like that was the chance you could actually get close to Prabhupada. But um, but still, despite that, suddenly it's a movement where most devotees, strong majority, never really talked to Prabhupada. And so it's very interesting because, anyway, I don't want to go too far into this, because, but I think it's relevant. And, and, and to tell you like where I'm going with all this, I think that there was something magical and beautiful and amazing about the movement when everyone knew Prabhupada and he knew everyone that we have to revive. Because if we say, okay, Prabhupada was here and, and then he left, you know, and we really lost something important, 
In one sense, no, Prabhupada's obviously present. In another sense, yes. And if you study the history of religions, this is true for all religions, it's just the way human beings are wired, that religions begin with a charismatic leader. And uh, here the word charisma in the academic sense, it's exactly what we mean by Shakti Avesh. That's actually what the original Greek word means. So religious movements almost always start because a group of people perceive that there's a person who has who Shakti, who has received special power from God. And therefore when that person speaks, that person has the highest authority because God is somehow speaking through that person. And that was of course Prabhupada's position, but Inevitably, in this world, that charismatic leader uh, leaves this world, whether it's a Prabhupada or a Jesus or a Buddha or whoever it may be. And so when that happens, whether the movement survives or not depends on whether the, the followers can take that charisma in the sense of, I don't mean charisma like Elvis Presley. Here, charisma means like um, that power which convinces the followers that, that actually the absolute is speaking through, through this person that this person has special authority coming from the highest place and so when that person is not physically present of course we have books and so on but can that movement convince its followers that that same authority is still present in an institution And of course, as we know, it's the first line in Prabhupada's will that, for example, the GBC is the ultimate manage, managing authority, key word, managing, managing authority for the entire ISKCON. And so I understand, because Prabhupada trained me, and because I have little common sense, and I'm sure you understand also, that, yes, that if you really care about Prabhupada, you remain loyal to his institution, you don't betray Prabhupada, by leaving his institution, even though being in a religious institution can be an amazing uh, experience. So, um, so what happens is though, because look at it this way, even when Prabhupada was present, even when Prabhupada was present, so many of his followers, probably most of them, as Prabhupada himself complained all the time, didn't read his books. I mean, how many people, what percentage of any society really is like fascinated by theology? Even if it's your own theology. And I remember Prabhupada, I remember in 72, giving a class in L.A. And he was, uh, he was, that's actually when he came and I took sannyas around May of 72. And I remember Prabhupada kind of making this sarcastic remark because the devotees were selling so many books. He said, so, if people ask you, do you read these books, you tell them, no, sir, I just sell them, I don't read them. And so Prabhupada himself was, you know, trying, somewhat unsuccessfully, to get all his disciples to read his books. And of course, some of us did read his books very carefully, and there was class every day. But, um, and then when Prabhupada left, if we ask the simple question, I mean, how many, what percentage of Prabhupada's initiated disciples today, today, are active in his service of those who are living? 
course, Nagaputni is one of the, I think she's one of the great Vaishnavis of our movement. And she's active, I know. She's making a face at me. But, but it's true. And uh, she is. Nagaputni is, has a really very powerful faith in Prabhupada and devotion for Prabhupada. So, but what percentage of Prabhupada's initiated disciples are still active in his mission? You know, maybe you can drop by the Sunday feast and, you know, shoot the breeze with your friends, but actually still taking seriously that Prabhupada is struggling, Prabhupada is trying, Prabhupada gave his life to try to build a powerful movement. He gave his life for that, and against all the doctor's orders. He kept traveling and doing all these things, and so when, when the uh, charismatic leader is gone, of course, he's not gone. If you really understand Prabhupada, if you really got it, then you know that obviously he's not gone. He's still present. But if someone connected to Prabhupada through anecdotes, I mean, I have to say, just because, you know, that when you go to Prabhupada Vyas Puja events, I find that almost always, or even the memory thing, you, people are always talking about anecdotes and very seldom talking about philosophy. And very seldom talking about what Prabhupada was actually trying to do and what we need to do now to help him do it. To establish a powerful Western mission so that his movement can succeed everywhere else. And so when, so, so when a great leader like that leaves, uh, there's a tendency to mythologize him. And by mythologize, I don't mean to say Prabhupada is not a great soul that came from the spiritual world. He is. But for example, attributing the powers of God, that, that a pure devotee is, uh, is omniscient. He knows everything about everything. And Prabhupada called this ludicrous. Ludicrous, which means comically absurd. And so I wrote a paper on this called Understanding Prabhupada. You can find it at hdgoswami.com free. So, so getting back to the type of ISKCON I would like to see really grow again was the ISKCON where Prabhupada was worshipped, as he should be, honored, recognized as Krishna's pure devotee, but not mythologized. The Prabhupada, which I don't think is a compliment, the Prabhupada who depended on us to come up with practical, powerful strategies to spread the movement in the West, as you see very clearly in Mukunda's book. And when Prabhupada, because ISKCON grew so fast, had to get involved in ISKCON management and practical decisions, he kept saying over and over again, get me out of here. Prabhupada kept saying, I want to sit down and write my books. For God's sake, just go manage ISKCON. And so Prabhupada was not a person who enthusiastically wanted to design all the practical strategies. He was a person that kept saying, get me out of here. Let me sit down and write my books. I don't want to be doing this. And when Prabhupada said that, you know, I came looking for a moon, not many stars, a moon actually sheds light. The many stars, you know, you can be in a star-filled night and you're still going to bump into things. 
But if the full moon is out, and that's very interesting, that analogy, isn't it? That, um, how does the first Shikshastika verse begin? That, um, the first Shikshastika. You know? Bhava Maha Davagni Nirvapanam Shreya Kairava Chandrika Vitaranam that, um, so, that line from the Shikshastaka, sh- huh? Oh, yeah, sorry. I mean, I actually know it. I was just so absorbed in what I was doing. I'm going to, you know, my forgetting it, I'm just going to attribute that to my advanced state rather than just, you know, totally spacing out. So, Cheto Darpanam Marjanam, Bhava Mahadavagdinirvapanam. And then this line, does this line relates to what Prabhupada needs of us right now? Shreya Kairava Chandrika Vitaranam. That the Sankirtan movement, Vitaranam, is spreading. Vitaranam means spreading. Shreya Kairava Chandrika. Chandrika means the, the moonlight, the light of the moon that illumines the night. Kali Yuga is darkness. It's the moon that illumines the darkness. That's why he's Chaitanya Chandra, not Chaitanya Surya. Or Nitai Chand, not, you know, Nitai. Surya. Because Kali Yuga is blindness and darkness, and it's the moon, not the sun, that illumines the darkness. And so it's said, Lord Chaitanya said, Chandrika, spreading the moon rays, which are Shreya Kairava, the moon rays of the Shreya Kairava. Kairava is a night-blooming lotus flower. It's a lotus. It's a beautiful image. There's a lot in this verse. The Kairava is a special lotus. I think it's a blue lotus, but that blooms at night. It blooms in the moonshine, in the moonlight. And it's it, and and this lotus, this Kairava, is the Shreya Kairava. It is the lotus of good fortune for the world. Shreya is the comparative degree of the word Sri. The word Sri can mean beauty, fortune, and so on, Sri. So very Sri in Sanskrit is Shreya. Shreya is just the, it, it's the comparative degree of Sri, very Sri. So this, here you have Lord Chaitanya spreading these moon rays which open the night-blooming lotus of good fortune for the world. It's, I think only God can come up with one of those. So it's, it's an amazing image. Now if you take that, Shreya Kairava Chandrika Vitaranam, and then consider that, what did Prabhupada say? I am looking for a moon. I'm looking for a moon. In other words, Someone who by their, their own light, which is obviously reflected from Prabhupada and Lord Chaitanya, can bring light to this world and bring good fortune. So that's what Prabhupada is looking for. He said, not blind followers. Followers, of course. I mean, intelligent followers. But not blindly, not foolishly, not like little children. You know, monkey see, monkey do. Prabhupada needs followers, disciples and followers who actually are intelligent. That's what he told Giriraj just before he left this world. 
he called Giri Swami to his room in the middle of the night and asked him, when I leave, will my movement go on? And the way Giri Raj, he told me the story many times at my request. So Giri Raj kind of gave the company answer, like the standard answer. Yes, Prabhupada, your movement will go on if we chant Hare Krishna and follow the principles. And Prabhupada indicated there more was needed. He said, he said there must be intelligence. There must be intelligence and in organization. So what Prabhupada really needs from us is to, is to be faithful to him, to serve him. But some of us, I mean, we need the intelligence to take Krishna consciousness and somehow or other make it attractive on a large scale in a world that has radically changed since Prabhupada was here. I mean, we know, Naga, I mean, you know, we're the same generation. If we think of the way the world was in 68, 69, 70, 71, and the way it is now, it's, it's not even recognizable as the same planet. And so that's the real mission to Prabhupada. And I think we need to talk about that all the time. It's not talked about very much. When I was younger, or when Nag, Nagaputni was younger, because we're obviously still young, and uh, we'll, you know, we'll punch you if you say different. But so when we were, when we were younger, it was, uh, we talked about it all the time. That's the way we talked, saving the world, spreading the movement. I mean, that was just the way we thought, that's the way we talked. And it came from Prabhupada. Now, it's not that everybody, people don't talk that way anymore so much in the Hare Krishna movement. We're going to spread this movement all over the United States, all over Western Europe, Canada, Australia. We're just going to, you know, we're going to just become a, the most powerful spiritual movement in these countries. People don't talk like that anymore. Now, if you just get your picture taken with a politician, that's a big thing. You know, you get on the front page of ISKCON News. Or, but we used to talk like that. And we believed in it. And so Prabhupada said, Deshtarni. So to me, the way to serve Prabhupada, I, I think that the way it, Iskon was in Prabhupada's Adi Lila, Iskon Adi Lila, to me, there's something so beautiful, so enchanting, so charming, so irresistible about the way Iskon was, let's say, in North America, when everybody knew Prabhupada and he knew everybody. And that's what I want to revive. I mean, we're just instruments. But that's, that's my dream. That we could again create that ecstatic, sort of like Iskon Vrindavan atmosphere. Not just in, in, the, in Vrindavan, which is, after all, it is Vrindavan. But that Vrindavan atmosphere, which Prabhupada created. When I joined the temple in Berkeley in 1969, there were about 10, 10 men and 10 women, and there wasn't the slightest idea that women were less than men. There was no idea that women were Maya and men were somehow, you know, I don't know, the, the, the bright side of the force or something. I remember when I, when I joined that temple, we were just all brothers and sisters. 
we liked each other. We were friends. It's like we came from a culture where, you know, we were people were friends, boys and girls. And and in that temple, there were no fall downs. It's not that because we just treated each other like brothers and sisters that, you know, like half the women in the ashram got pregnant or something. I mean, you know, there was nothing like that. I was in Berkeley and we were all friends. We all really liked each other and we, had, we were having a great time together. And, and everyone, no one was falling down. And then Prabhupada personally sent me to Boston to work on his books. And the same thing. We were all just like brothers and sisters. And, and again, no fall downs. No fall downs, no inappropriate behavior. But we were all friends. And we all liked each other. And uh, I met Rukmini. You know Rukmini. <laughs> she's a great Vaishnavi. I mean, she's definitely a great Vaishnavi. I mean, she was, we joke about this, because she was, I mean, she was tough. And she was in charge of the kitchen and the deities. And she was just, my God, she must have been like 19 years old or something. She was tough, fiery. And, uh, and I was the temple commander or vice president. And so, you know, she'd be yelling at her. Hey, Diana. Actually, hurry, Diana, because everyone there mispronounced my name at that time, uh, following my own example. So she would shout, you know, Hari Diana, because, you know, I was I was in charge of Manny's temple. She like she needed someone in the kitchen, or she needed someone, uh, you know, on the altar. <laughs> and so we say, it's like brother and sister. We were, uh, but it was just so it was so nice. It was so satisfying. You know, you had friends, you had family. And it wasn't just about rituals. I mean, of course, there are rituals that we perform. That's our culture. But there was a holy day. I mean, so many temples I've gone to nowadays, there'll be like a Janmashtami. And, and, you know, there's always the fire sacrifice. There's always the Abhishek. We didn't do those things back then. It was more about knowledge. And in that verse where Krishna says, Tadvidhi Pranipatena, learn the truth by approaching a bona fide guru, he actually says, learn that. And so what is that? He literally says, learn, know that. And if you want to know what that is, you read the previous verse. Because you read the previous verse, you'll find out what that is. And that turns out to be worshipping Krishna by dedication to knowledge. Where Krishna says, Shreyan Dravya better than offerings of paraphernalia. Dravya means paraphernalia. Better than offerings of paraphernalia, jnana jagya is that you offer your intelligence and you learn the knowledge that I'm giving. You dedicate, offer your intelligence to me and let me fill it with spiritual knowledge. Jnana jagya parantapa. Sarvam karmakilam partha. Jnana parisamapyate. I rest my case. Krishna says that after all, uh, all duties, all rituals, culminate, samapyate, culminate in knowledge. Krishna says, Chaturvida Bhajante Mang, four kinds of people worship me. Who is the best? The one who has knowledge. And what does it mean to have knowledge? Vasudeva Sarvamiti, that Vasudeva Krishna is everything. So when Krishna says Tadvidhi, that comes right after his statement that 
offering your intelligence to me, to be filled with knowledge, is better than just offering paraphernalia to me. And I have to say that most of the time nowadays when I go to a big temple on one of these holy days, it's not about knowledge, it's all about offering paraphernalia. Whether it's the Abhishek, the fire sacrifice, and they'll maybe squeeze a class in. So, I feel that my love for Prabhupada, whatever love I have for Prabhupada, or my love for Prabhupada's mission is that uh, we've got a job to do. I don't know, you know, I happen to live in, in, in America, Western countries, wouldn't recommend it for any other purpose except serving Prabhupada, but the point is, it's, it, you know, it ain't what it used to be. I have a disciple who gave a class several years ago at Florida State University, it's a class on world religion, so he just asked a question. Beginning of the class, he said, okay, so... And this is in Florida, where they had a center. They're giving out prasadam. It's right, you know, near Gainesville. He said, "So, how many of you have heard of the Hare Krishna movement?" Nobody, no one. So that that would be my appeal to all of you and to anyone else who's listening, because I'm also I actually um, uh, double dipping here, and I'm broadcasting live on Facebook. So. Um, Prabhupada needs us more than ever. I mean, obviously, that's kind of a pastime statement because Prabhupada is Krishna, and so Prabhupada already has everything. But at least in his pastimes of, of being Lord Krishna's great preacher, he needs us more than ever. He needs us more than ever. Because it may not bother some people that Prabhupada's pride and joy, that which he practically gave his life for, to build up a powerful Western mission has now been reduced to just a, basically, just a shadow of what it used to be. Uh, that bothers me, and it bothers me every single day. And it bothers me in a way which I think is spiritual, not material, because I don't want anything. I'm not trying to make a buck in the Hare Krishna movement. And I've already had all the titles and positions that ISKCON has to offer, and I just want to get a little more peace in my life now, but but still, um, if someone loves Prabhupada, I don't see how you can go one day without really being bothered and concerned about the fact that if Prabhupada came back right now and traveled around America, he would hardly recognize his movement. So, uh, it doesn't mean the devotees are bad. We have many great devotees. They're great souls. It's no one's fault. I'm not blaming anyone. There's so many really, really very sincere, very devoted souls in all these countries. But we have a problem, Houston. And so I think that that's at least based on the way Prabhupada trained me. Obviously, other people may have different inspiration from Krishna in their heart. But the way Prabhupada trained me, uh, I have nothing to do right now in my life except everything I possibly can to rebuild what Prabhupada gave us. So when I leave this world, I can at least say that Prabhupada gave us this fabulous inheritance. We didn't squander it. We actually restored it, what Prabhupada gave us. So I'll end on that note. And if you have any questions, get your credit card ready. Please 
China, of course, in a sense, I think China has had one big advantage among <laughs> devotees, and that is in China, because of, we know the nature of the government and the society, we all know that. You can't just go out and, you know, jump around in the street and bang on, and you can't do that. Yeah. And so therefore, the, Chi yeah, the Chinese devotees have been forced to be very intelligent and to think and to, you know, how do we do this? in an appropriate mm -hmm. way so that we are not, uh, you know, uh, attacked by the government, so that people mm -hmm. understand us. And so I, I think in a sense when you have too much freedom, it leads to laziness of mind. And I think in countries where you have all this freedom, you don't have to worry like in China, I think it can lead to a lot of sloppy outreach in the sense of not really taking care, because I can prove very easily in, you know, in a minute that cultural barriers are much more difficult than legal barriers. In China, in China, there are serious legal barriers. But the devotees, you know, through their devotion and through their intelligence have, you know, overcome a lot of these barriers and as we know, there are many wonderful Vaishnavas in China. On the other hand, take a country like France. La France. Um, in France, there are no serious legal barriers, but there are very serious cultural barriers. And so because the devotees, this is my view, because in a country like France, or America as that example, let's say France, because there are no major legal barriers. I mean, you know, the French government is, from, from the point of view of Americans, 
a bit eccentric in how they treat religions and everything. But still, there are no serious legal barriers in France. But there are huge cultural barriers. For example, because of, just to give facts, because of all the Muslim immigration, and I'm not judging anyone here, I am, I'm just saying, it's a, it's a fact. France has more Muslims than any other European country. And, the, and, and because of France itself, its national character, and the fact that they really feel threatened, not only by, say, Muslim immigration, but also just the fact that for centuries there was this great cultural battle, battle between England and France to see who would be the dominant culture in the world, and England won. And France has a big complex about that. And so, for all these reasons, in France, they're extremely sensitive about foreign cultures. And France right now is in a, is, is in a moment, a historical moment, when they are very strongly reaffirming French culture and French values. As they would say, les valeurs républicaines. You know, the Republican values. I mean, that's, that's what France is all about right now. And so, in that environment to dress up with Indian village dress and go out on the streets of France and try to basically culturally colonize France. Culturally colonize France with an external, external, not internal, external culture, which frankly half comes from Muslims and half from Hindus including dress, architecture, and food, is like, I mean, I have, every time I think about it, I have a super, oh my God, moment. I can't think, frankly, and this is just me, my opinion, of a worse strategy. I can't think of a strategy that's more guaranteed to fail than doing that. And so I think if you look at France, I mean, the movement is much, much, much stronger in China than France. Much stronger. I mean, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. And yet France has no legal barriers. China has major legal barriers. France has major cultural barriers. But apparently in China, remarkably the cultural barriers are actually less than in France. And so what this obviously proves, if we want to like turn our brains on, what this obviously proves is that cultural barriers can be much more difficult than legal barriers. And so when Tamal Krishna Goswami, another great Vaishnava, when he went to China and did what only TKG could do, really, or probably. But when, T, when he went to China and he wore, you know, what we amazingly call karmi clothes, which is, I mean, that right there, to call it karmi clothes is kind of, it shows that something's not working up there. Anyway, to, um, he went in Western clothes, shaved off his sika, and, and did a miraculous devotional service by Prabhupada and in Krishna's empowerment. Prabhupada didn't complain about that. Prabhupada was ecstatic. So, 
we not only have to consider legal barriers, we have to consider cultural barriers. And we have to be, Vaishnavas are called saranga. They go to the essence. Prabhupada himself said to Allen Ginsberg in their conversation, and he also said in other times, and I've documented these things in papers I've written, that it's absurd. It's just like, it's, it's a complete mis- misunderstanding to think that we really care about these external things so much. Here's a direct quote from Prabhupada. Dress is a dead thing. We are interested in a living thing, consciousness, not a dead thing, dress. And so, these quotes are not famous. There's all kinds of quotes from Prabhupada which are absolutely critical, essential, for us to find our way towards success in the West, and yet no one knows these quotes. And then other things that Prabhupada probably never said are very famous. And so if you look at the way conditioned souls filter the teachings of a pure devotee, filter them, and certain things that Prabhupada didn't consider very important are raised to this high position of being absolutely essential, and other things that Prabhupada said that are critical, that are essential, are completely forgotten. So a conditioned soul will filter Prabhupada's practical teachings. So what I'm trying to do, that's what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get people, devotees who are interested, to actually pay attention to what Prabhupada really taught. And I don't want to go through my whole, whole stump speech here, but but Prabhupada needs us to be intelligent. That's what he told Gary Raj. Prabhupada doesn't simply need us to be blind followers. He need, Prabhupada said, here's a direct quote from a Gita purport, blind following is condemned. Prabhupada needs us to be intelligent followers, completely committed to Prabhupada on all essential points, committed to his institution, committed to his basic principles, committed to his the- theology. However, in practical details, Prabhupada himself says in chapter 6 of the Nectar Devotion, we have to adjust. If you, whether you are a very large mammal or a religious movement, if you don't adapt, you will go extinct. Or a you know, gigantic reptile that lived 46 million years ago on the earth, dinosaurs. You know, whether you're a huge mammal or a gigantic reptile or whether you're a religious movement. If you don't adapt, you go extinct. And so what Prabhupada needs more than anything from us, if we want to talk about what Prabhupada needs, we have to rebuild the Western mission. We have to do it intelligently by finding ways to do what the Chinese devotees have done. That's a great example. Under very dangerous circumstances, they've done an amazing, they've done amazing devotional service. In the West, where there's, like in America, so much freedom, I mean, it's almost a disease, you know, people with all their freedom. It doesn't matter how stupid someone is, they still want all their freedom. You know, the freedom to, you know, drink beer and, uh, and you know, anyway, I won't go into it. So, so that's what we need to do. We need to follow the example of China, we need to follow the example of other places where 
devotees have. I had that experience. Prabhupada sent me to Latin America. We opened Brazil. It was a military dictatorship. And I had to find a way to spread the movement in a military dictatorship. And by Krishna's mercy, we did that, and the movement flourished like anything. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Sweta, you have a question. Uh, Maharaj Ji. Hare Krishna. Uh, I'm uh, very, it is a wonderful thing to get your darshan. I'm a very, very new devotee. Oh. I would say, I, I've not been initiated, just very, very new to ISKCON. I've been just doing this course and started my journey. Uh, and it's so wonderful to listen to your thoughts and to I think you've taken it to a different uh, level which we were not really thinking you know thinking how it is happening in the western world and talking about various other cultures and uh, other religions and talking about France and other things so that's a different view altogether uh, that was very wonderful I just have a, a question about you're talking about this mission in the western world what is your take about this mission in, in India itself? Because, you know, I come from a corporate background and all that, have had worked and all that. I don't see people, I, I have not seen in my whole corporate circle, I have not really met probably more than four or five people who probably are into Hare Krishna movement. And, and when I see now, and for me itself, I am just probably would say a two-month-old person in this movement now. And I feel there's, uh, I mean, I, what I was lacking and what I was not knowing, I was really living in ignorance. I would, I think that there's so much to learn, so much intelligence, so much knowledge. So what is, what, what do you think that how it is really being done in India from mm. where it started? Mm. Uh, one thing. And yes. there's another one more question is uh, about, we keep talking about, especially in India, I, maybe in other worlds also, about women empowerment. So how... How is the women empowerment in ISKCON happening now? These are the two Very questions. good. That's good. That her, her name means white lion. <laughs> Shaita Singh. So, yeah. wh where are you, by the way, in India? I'm very close uh, to Vrindavan in Faridabad. Oh, oh. Now, yeah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. And, um, yes, sir. Actually, India is a very interesting place right now because do you know that there there's a news there's a news channel called we on yeah yeah which is world is one news which i follow i mean i love it and yeah. what's happened in india now is that there's there are these whole new generations like you who are super tech savvy and know what's going on in the world, and then you get, uh, you know, Modi Das Brahmachari. And uh, I, in the past, you know, I, I, many times I went to India, and I was thinking it's kind of, you know, it's nice, it's India. But actually, amazing, hey, is that your daughter there, or son? Yeah, my uh, seven-year-old daughter, she keeps oh, sleeping in some Hare Krishna! <laughs> Say Hare Krishna. <laughs> <laughs> She's a bit shy now. <laughs> so, India is fascinating. 
these these younger of course the older generations many good people I mean many but these younger generations they're so up to date and I find that objectively because I follow world news and I'm not just saying this because you know I'm a Hindu file or something but actually just in terms of getting a really good picture of what's going on in the world I find it's you know that uh, what's his name uh, Falky Sharmupadhyaya. I really like these people. I mean, they're really sharp and they're really intelligent. And and also Modi, because they're really, India's really getting their act together in a way that has not happened, frankly, since, I think, since the Mughals went there a thousand years ago. And, uh, for example, in this standoff with China up near Ladakh, and they really, you know, forced China to back down. Whereas in the 60s, when that same kind of thing happened, India backed down, and, um, whether, I mean, these things may sound mundane, but the way they're modern, India has the world's fastest growing economy. They're, they've totally revamped and reorganized their military. They're, they're projecting uh, soft and, and even you know, hard power internationally. They talk about their neighborhood. They're the world's greatest producer of vaccines. And, and so what we know is that there are a lot of very intelligent people in India. There always have been. I mean, they also have, like, it's like an ocean of you know, other classes, but... But actually, in India, there are a lot of really sharp people with the digital age now. It used to be, whoops, I'm also broadcasting. I have to uh, plug in my other digital device. I am, you know, super techie. I actually know how to turn on my phone and turn it off, which I know will impress you. So, so what I'm saying is that if you look back in history, up until, let's say, Muhammad of Ghazni, and all these, you know, horrible people that came in. And so India was, you know, it was a central country. If you look at a map of the world, a flat map, if you look at a flat map of the, map of the world and kind of just put aside the Western Hemisphere, which is out in the middle of nowhere, you know, North and South America and Australasia, if you just look at really uh, the one... Your Mac will see... Let's plug in the... Oh, I don't want my computer. Uh-oh. Oh, my God. My computer is somehow not... Oh. Okay. Sorry, I forgot to plug in my computer. So if you, if you need, you know, computer advice, you can, you can write me. Just kidding. So... There we go. So, and actually, this one wasn't the problem, so I unnecessarily disturbed my iPhone. Okay. So if you look, if you look at a flat map of the world, and just put aside for the moment the Americas, India is actually in the center of the world. The greatest, you know, a very very strong majority of all the people on Earth live in what is actually one great landmass, which is Europe, Africa, and Asia. It's actually one landmass. It's called different continents, but it's actually one landmass. And India's right in the center. It's well known that India was the richest country in the world up until actually a few centuries ago. I mean, like half the world's wealth was in India. If you look at the pre-industrial world, where wealth was measured in ter terms of agricultural products, precious stones, uh, you know, ability to produce luxury items like fine fabrics and everything. India was by far the richest country in the world. By far. 
the Roman Empire had a trade, huge trade deficit with India. Because, because India had many things the Romans wanted and, and, in, and Rome had virtually nothing the Indians wanted. And therefore, they had to pay gold. And so, and so there was a huge drain on the Roman gold supply in their trade with India. Alexander the Great, the one place where his army just said, we're done, we're not going further, was when they looked at India. And they understood how big it was and, and so on and so forth. And so India played a leading role in the world. And then, of course, Kali Yuga, you have the Muslim invasions, you have the, and then the British, of course, and so on and so forth. Now what I see as a historian is that India, you know, it's kind of like, it, it's funny because in, in the old days, you had these invaders coming in through the Khyber Pass, through the, you know, from Central Asia, Mohammed Ogaden, all these creeps, and, you know, just causing havoc. But nowadays, they can't even think about it. So mm -hmm. India has become very powerful. It, it, it's the most united India has been, practically, since the times of the Mahabharata. And so, and so you have all these very intelligent people, you get the younger generation, and because of technology, because of digital technology, it used to be you'd go to third world countries, whether it was Latin America or India, and they just had no idea what was going on. Mm. You know, they were just like, they had no clue as to, you know, what was going on. But now they know everything. Mm. They know everything now, and they have all these intelligent people. And they're, they're really cutting edge in terms of digital technology, they're revamping their military. So, so the way the world is going right now, India is becoming more and more important in the world. And so, um, yeah, I'd really like that win. Interestingly, um, Prabhupada's vision for India back then, because Prabhupada is, you know, he's born in the 19th, 18th, 19th century. So Prabhupada wanted India. Oh. Sorry, one second. Let me get rid of that. Hello? Yes. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll turn it down. Thank you. Another guest complained that my TV was too loud. Actually, that shows that I've got this great announcer's voice. I sound like television. Anyway, so... Um, so India, fastest growing economy, Prabhupada wanted India to kind of reject technology, you know, reject all these modern things and just go back to sort of, you know, simple living, Varnashram. And it was a great vision, but obviously it just, it didn't happen at all. But, but I think this is the next best thing. India is becoming more and more important in the world. And, and I believe that even in India, and I've had many Indians tell me this, who are, you know, friends and understand what I'm doing, they've, they've almost like admonished me and said, don't think that Krishna West is not needed in India. He said, because, he said, there's, they said, there's all these new generations of people and they want this. You know, they've got, India's got talent and Bollywood, even Bollywood. It, it's completely changed, you know, in, in many ways. 
And so, there, so yeah, I think India is, is becoming, like never before, a very exciting place to preach, a super relevant yeah. place to preach. And I think, yes, we also need these uh, little techniques that we're developing. So thank you for asking that question. And, and anyway, I, I, I won't get myself into more trouble. I'll just stop there. So thank you very much, Sweta. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I had another question about the women empowerment. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Very good point. Uh, In my little ecstatic deviation called Krishna West, um, there are no gender barriers. In fact, at least half of our top leaders around the world and probably a little more than half, are women. And so we take seriously the idea that we're not the body. We don't think that you're not your body unless you're a woman. If you're a woman, you are your body. And so I think, you know, the, 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 at least in the Western world, and probably in a lot of communities in India, more educated people, especially younger people, probably the easiest way to kill any chance you have of really being successful is uh, male chauvinism. And actually what Krishna teaches in the Bhagavad Gita is very interesting. Krishna says that Sadrashang, this is 333, Sadrashang cheshtate svasya pi. Even an enlightened person follows their own nature. Because prakritiṃ janti bhutani, creatures follow their nature. Nigraha king karishati. What will repression do? And then Krishna says, so take that point, that you must follow your nature. You cannot act otherwise. Like they say in America, I saw this bumper sticker, nature bats last. You know, like they get that. And so, then consider something else Krishna says repeatedly. In chapter 18, that uh, that your duty is born of your nature, of your nature, your individual nature. Guna karma vivagasha. And sabhava jena kuntaya nibhadak sena karmana. Everyone is bound to their own work, which is born of their own nature. Then Krishna says something else. I'm constructing an argument here. My mother said I would be, always used to say I'd be a good lawyer. So then Krishna also says, Krishna also says that it's very dangerous not to do your own duty. In fact, he says it's more dangerous than death. Which is pretty dangerous. So, if we do not allow women to serve Krishna according to their own abilities and their own nature, then in the name of protecting women, we're actually putting them in danger. And so we cannot say that you're not your body and then treat people within our movement as bodies. So our position, my position is, you can do it, and you want to do it, go do it. So, for example, I have one disciple, wonderful young lady in uh, Santiago, Chile, 
very intelligent, and uh, she's managing all of our publications in seven languages all over the world, and she's doing a great job. Another Vaishnavi uh, is in Los Angeles now, originally from Europe, and she created on her own initiative an entire legal department just because she knew how important that was to properly register us, to, to properly formalize our relationship with ISKCON and, and to protect us in the future. And she's, you know, amazingly. She, this same person also, previously she was in, she joined us in London, created herself a whole Krishna West project in London that's still going on. And she's not from England. She was in a foreign country, in a foreign language. And so she's done brilliant work. So, uh, one of the reasons Krishna West is doing so well is because women are finally, you know, being able to serve fully according to their abilities. And it's not the only place. I mean, obviously there are other places in ISKCON where there are women leaders. So I don't want to say we're the only ones. But yes, for two reasons. I, I personally think, this is my, as a historian, as a, you know, to use the pretentious phrase, as a professionally trained historian, um... I think that suppressing women was the biggest disaster in the history of the Hare Krishna movement. I think it's one of the main reasons our fortunes have sunk so low in so many countries. Because as Prabhupada knew when he first came that you can't spread the Hare Krishna movement in the West if you don't allow men and women this opportunity. And so what's happened is, I've seen with my own eyes, and it's tragic, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of really interesting, talented women either leave the movement or distance themselves. And guess what happens? The men follow them. You know, human nature. Because that was Prabhupada's original thesis. If you don't accept the women, you don't get the men. I had personal experience of this, actually. I could tell the story. My 11th birthday. I was, I think it was 10th, I think it was 11th birthday. And so, you know, my mother was planning a party and everything. And then, I had, a, I had, a, I had great parents. And so, you know, she went out and got the invitations and, and you know, you're invited to a birthday party. And I was, you know, I had lots of friends. I was, I had a nice, you know, the extent that an 11-year-old, you can call it social life, but I had lots of friends. You know, at that age, mostly like boyfriends. And so then my friends started saying, I can't come to your party. Sorry, I can't come. And I was, I, you know, I was devastated at that age. It's just like, it's like the end of the world. Because, and then I, I had made one mistake. Because I'd noticed that among my boyfriends, they were starting to become interested in girls. And I thought, no, come on, let's just hang together. I mean, you guys are... So I saw it sort of to, you know, guide them back into the fold of brahmacharya life. I, um, I only invited boys. I didn't invite the girls to my party. And so I called up one of my friends who was really popular with everybody. And I said, like, what's going on? Because I was, I was practically in tears. You know, what's going on? And he said hey, the problem is you didn't invite the girls. And so I, I remember I was practically in tears. I went and told my mother, 
And she said, oh, that's all right. We'll invite the girls. So then she went out and got more invitations. I invited all the girls. Suddenly all the boys were coming. And so, and then I had a happy birthday party. I think we went to the ice skating rink or something. So, but the point here is that I think my experience, my experience explains ISKCON. If you don't treat women properly, you will not grow. You will not flourish. You're basically dead on the water. And so in Krishna West, my little nefarious scheme, in Krishna West, there's no one is treated like a body. Everyone is treated like a soul. And if you are able to do a service and you want to do it, everyone gets out of your way and you do it. And if all the leaders are women or half the leaders, I don't care. I want to get the job done. And so we're finding, I'm finding, that women are just, there wouldn't be a Krishna West without the women. So that's my position. My position is we are all equally souls, we are all equally dear to Krishna, and everyone should have an equal opportunity to serve Krishna to the best of their ability. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the answers. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Maharaj, I'm so much indebted to VIHT and Nagpatni Mataji for introducing us to you, <laughs> such a great personality. Um, we are so thankful to them. And uh, I, it was very interesting listening to all your thoughts, Maharaj. Maharaj, uh, uh, can you tell us about uh, the activities of uh, Krishna West, um, like you were speaking? Oh, sure. About them. Yeah, we... Um... We have centers in different countries. Still, I mean, the center, the ideas that I put forth have spread all over ISKCON. And I would say in the Western world, they're almost like a majority view now. So that's, that's been, a, as far as our own, like under our own label, you know, Krishna West, we have preaching projects here and there. I mean, to be perfectly honest, treat you like adults. That's kind of scary. But, um, the the leadership in ISKCON has has sort of you know passively tried to check Krishna West, and I have tried to and it's hard to spread something in a movement that kind of doesn't want you to grow, but still I mean we're doing it, and um, also we have maintained a very high ethical standard. We don't like go and take devotees from one project, join us. And we've actually been very ethical about it. And uh, we started out with no resources, no temples, no people. I mean, for the first few months of Krishna West, I was the only member. And then, <laughs> which was kind of nice because there wasn't much management. And then, but then, um, uh, what do they say? You know the definition of a camel? It's a, a horse designed by a committee. But anyway, so um, 
so it, it's grown. And like I said, I, I mean, in a sense, I haven't had, because I've been sort of, you know, health issues, whatever, haven't really been that active traveling around, organizing centers, which maybe I should do now. But, uh, yeah, all over the world. And people write to me every day from all around the world. So it's really changed a lot of lives. And it, it's the knowledge which is really having a huge effect on devotees in terms of their conception. But we do have projects. Okay, some of the initiatives, managed, like something uh, unique in initiatives that you've taken? Um, um, yeah, in Latin America, there are several countries where we've become the main Hare Krishna movement. I mean, we're ISKCON, it's, it's an ISKCON. But there are several countries in Latin America where at first they actually tried to stop us and criticize us because we committed the mad elephant offense of not wearing Indian clothes. But um, but actually, yeah, so, so there, wherever we really get going, we tend to be, also in some parts of America, wherever we actually organize, we tend to become the main preaching entity in ISKCON in that place. And now we have to do more. I feel like Krishna is pushing me to, you know, out of my proverbial comfort zone. And so I'm... Uh, and we hope to do much more. There's still, I mean, still need to do a, a, a lot more. But we'll try. Thank you so much, Margaret. It was really inspiring. Uh, Maharaj, you have a couple of books that are, are coming out soon. Do you want to tell us about those? Okay, we'll, we'll switch into an infomercial. Um, I did a book called The Com uh, Comprehensive Guide to the Bhagavad Gita, which has gone very well. In fact, many ISKCON gurus actually study it. And uh, it, it's based on linguistic analysis in which I take all the main terms in the Gita like bhakti or yoga or karma or jnana, yagya and so on, and then define those words just by Krishna's own statements. I let Krishna define all the words. And um, I did a book on Mahabharata which is based on a series of lectures. Now, oh there it is. Thank you, Naga. You'll get a cut. If anyone buys that book, you get a cut. So, um, then I'm also, um, I just finished my first novel. Because I was personally inspired by novels. I mean, 19th century, 20th century is kind of yuck. But the, and so I thought if we, we could write literature. And um, so that'll be coming out in a couple of weeks. In which I, I believe is Krishna Conscious. has a lot of our philosophy in it. But it's really just, I think, a very interesting novel. And that I'm also working on a, what may be a three to five part work on the Mahabharata. Uh, the great Sripad Madhvacharya uh, wrote a book about the Mahabharata called Mahabharata Tatparya Nirnaya, in which he said, and do not kill the messenger, in which he said that uh, the Mahabharata is thoroughly corrupt, the text. Sarva Shaha throughout. And he's talking about the Sanskrit text available to him. And of course, there are all kinds of historical reasons for that. But uh, we know still what basically happened because the Bhagavatam, which is a pure text, uh, approved by, not only approved, but praised by Lord Chaitanya and, and 
distinguished by Jiva Goswami, the great theologians of our theologian of our tradition, in his Tattva Sandarbha, which is basically the foundational work on Gaudiya Vaishnava epistemology. Jiva Goswami states that um, our most important source of reliable information, of spiritual information, is the Bhagavatam. And so in the Bhagavatam, if you think about it, when, when, when in chapter 5 and 6 of the first canto, when Vyasadeva was lamenting and then Narada, his guru, came and said, what the heck are you doing here? Because he said, Jagupsitam, very heavy. He said, because you gave all these karmakanda literatures, all these literatures that basically, um, you know, encourage people just to enjoy the material world through Vedic rituals. So he told him, tell people the real truth. Tell people the highest truth. And so then what Vyasa does, the rest of the first canto is Mahavarata. Because you get the prayers of Kunti, which is a Mahabharata story, you get the prayers of Bhishma, the passing of Bhishma, you get Krishna leaving this world, and Parikshit Maharaj. So really, from the seventh canto on, Yadavradev, Sinjayanam, on the battlefield of Kurukshet, between the Sinjayas and the Kurus, Vireshu Tau, when all the warriors had gone to the destination of warriors, which means they died. And then, basically, Vyaste, for the rest of the first canto, he retells the Mahabharata, and he reveals who these people really were. They were all great devotees. So you find out that Bhishma is actually a pure devotee, that Kunti is actually a pure devotee. You get the real story of Parikshit Maharaj, how he left the world, because the Mahabharata has a sort of a, a, a very different and terrible story about Parishi. That he was afraid, that he climbed up onto a, you know, he tried to escape. So, basically, the rest of the first canto, and a lot of other parts of the Bhagavatam, Vyas is correcting, he's giving the real story of Mahabharata. So in the Bhagavatam, we have all the basic headlines, all the basic points of what really happened. It's all there in the Bhagavatam in various places. And uh, so that's my guide. And so I'm sort of reconstructing. I'm using two techniques which have never really been used before to do the Mahabharata. If you look at all the editions of the Mahabharata, you know, everything from Amar Chitra Kata to, you know, whatever else, then um, the Mahabharata has basically been produced in two different ways. One by sort of Western academic way, which it's sort of like studying a butterfly by killing it, you know, and pinning it onto a board. And so they kind of kill the story and they have all these, you know, crazy ideas, it's all mythology and they're, you know, clueless. It's very learned cluelessness. And so you have that approach, you know, the sort of the disbelieving academic approach. And then you have the believer's approach where this is Shastra and whatever it says there, that's what happened. Ignoring what Madhvacharya said, that it's a very corrupted text. So what I'm doing is, I'm approaching the Mahabharata as, hopefully, as a Vaishnava. As someone who knows that Krishna really is God. He really came to the world, actually about 5,100 years ago. 
and uh, the Pandavas are really there. So uh, from a faithful thing, but then in the academic sense, trying to reconstruct the actual history using the Bhagavatam as a boundary. So I'm not going to say anything which goes against the Bhagavatam because the Bhagavatam is not a corrupt text. And so I'm staying within the boundaries of the Bhagavatam but using sort of, I think, very good scholarly techniques to reconstruct what actually happened. And it's amazing. I mean, amazing things are coming out. When you actually look at the map of India and you understand where was where was Hastinapur and where was uh, well, we know where Mathura is, the capital of the um, Yadus, and all the other kingdoms, the ancient kingdoms of Bharat Varsha. Just the geography itself reveals so much about political affairs. Just the geography, as it always does. If you look at what's going on in the world today, you can't understand what's going on in America or the Middle East or India unless you look at the geography. And then what I'm doing is I have reference books I'm studying. Like, like I said, I'm talking about, I'm, I'm trying to understand Shantanu or Satyavati. Then I use these reference books so I can find everything stated about them in all the Puranas. And then I find what's stated in the Mahabharata. And then you, find, then you ask the question, what would real people do? Like, for example, the marriage between Satyavati and Shantanu. There's all kinds of questions. Satyavati was the only daughter of the emperor of the world because the Mahabharata very clearly explains, and this is actually real, that um, during the time of King Vasu, the imperial capital had shifted. It was not in Hastinapur. It was shifted to Chedi, to the capital city called Shutimati. And it was actually the king of Chedi who was born in the Kuru line but became the king of Chedi, and he was the king of king. He was the emperor in Chedi, which today is just sort of, uh, I think a little bit to the southwest of um, Chunzi. But anyway, the Chedi kingdom, so the first question is, he has one daughter. She's the only daughter of the emperor of the world. What the heck is she doing in a fishing village? Even today in India, fishing villages are not high-class places. It's like parents, respectable parents, don't say to their kids, when you grow up, I want you to become a fisherman. You know, that doesn't happen. So the question is, why was the emperor's daughter in a fishing village? And there's some sort of fabulous explanation in Alvarita, because she had body odors. I mean, I just think, no, that's... You know, good fathers and mothers don't give up their children because they have a problem with body odor. They get medical help. They do so. You don't just, like, throw your daughter. And, and if you're going to give up your daughter, why would you send her to a low-class place? Why would the emperor of the world send his daughter to be raised by very low-class people in some remote place? And there actually is a reason, but it's very different. And to understand the real reason, you have to understand the geopolitical reality at the time. And then, for example, the famous story that Shantanu was wandering about, hunting in the forest, and he ran into Satyavati and thought, my God, she's beautiful, I want to marry her. So, first of all, if you look at the map of India, 
and you find out how long it takes to go from Hastinapur to where Satyavati was. We know where Satyavati was because you can triangulate her location in the sense that she was living on the Jamuna River and she was in the kingdom of Chedi. And so if you study ancient maps and maps of ancient kingdoms, you see there's a relatively small area in India where the Jamuna River passed through Chedi. And so I kind of decided that must be where Satyavati was and where Vyas was born. And then later, I just happened to find, kind of, you know, like haunting the World Wide Web and looking for clues, that actually there's a temple. There's a temple in India, in that area, which is the Vyasa Janma Mandira. It's a temple to Vyasa's birth, which is where Satyavati lived, and it was almost exactly in the spot that I figured she must have lived. So, so then the question is, Shantanu, who's in the process of restoring the centrality of, of, of Hastinapura, because the capital had shifted to Chedi for, for reasons, and even that you can understand why. And again, it's reconstructing history. I'll just tell you very quickly, and then I'll just wrap it. And that is because Parashuram, Avatara, appeared not long before all these things are happening in the Mahabharata. In fact, when Bhishma refused to marry the widows of Vichitravirya, Parashuram was still on the planet. And so because Parashuram killed all the Brahmanas, uh, Kshatriyas, he killed all the Kshatriyas, and therefore all the Kshatriyas, the women, young women had no one to marry. And it was a crisis because it was anarchy. And so it was arranged that the Kshatriyas, the women, princesses, would approach the most pure sages who would give them sons to reconstruct the Kshatriya Varna. The result of that was that you have all these kings in the world who are kind of like Brahmanas. And the Mahabharata says that at that time the Satya Yuga had come back. So no one steals, no one lies. There's nothing to govern. So you find kings, for example, the king of Hastinapur, who's Pratipa, the father of Shantanu, he goes to the bank of the Ganga and he's just practicing yoga, he's meditating. Why? There's nothing to do. There are no enemies. There are no criminals. You have King Vasu, who goes into the wilderness to an ashram and is just practicing yoga. He wants to go to Indraloka. So anyway, and this is of course is juxtaposed of the Asura invasion of the earth at that time, why they picked the planet. But what I mean to say is that therefore when Shantanu is born and power starts to go back to Hasanapur, and there's a reason that happened, which again, you have to figure it out, but then it becomes obvious. Because Indra personally came to Vasu and made him the king of Chedi, and in my view, empowered him to protect the world from this Asura invasion. But then the most powerful Asura, who is called Viprachiti, took birth on earth in the Chedi dynasty, and he became known 
as Jarasandha. So what's interesting is that the Asuras, in order to take over the earth, rather than fighting, they just took birth as the heirs to all these kingdoms. So therefore, even though Vasu was king of kings, based in Shady, he could not leave imperial power to his descendants because his grandson was Jarasandha, the Asura. So, because uh, Virpachiti, uh, Jarasandha's first son, was um, Brihadrata, who took over Magadha. Vasu was so powerful, he had five sons and just gave them all kingdoms. So Magadha, which is Bihar today, and which is a very important kingdom, always been in India back then, he just gave it to his son. But then his son was Jarasandha. And so therefore, if imperial power remained in this Shady dynasty, it would pass on to the Asuras. And the whole point of the dynasty was to stop the Asuras. So therefore, power was shifted back to Hastinapur. It's like this game of cat and mouse with the Asuras. And so, that being the case, at the time when Ganga has left Shantanu, he is in the process of restoring Hastinapur as the imperial seat of power. That being the case, how could he run into Satyavati? Because it's actually many hundreds of kilometers from Hastinapur to where Satyavati lived. So what was he doing there? And then you have to figure that out. It's just like you don't find, let's say, the Prime Minister Modi just sort of wandering around New Zealand or something, you know, incognito. And so, and so the question is, what was Santanu doing there? And to understand that, so there's all these things that have to be reconstructed to come up with a coherent story that actually makes sense. And, and I think the reason, and I think this is necessary to do, if the Mahabharata is actually going to become a powerful force in the world outside India. We actually have to reconstruct logically, but faithfully, the story and what was really going on. And so I'm starting as the Mahabharata itself. Mahabharata is a very big book, and even 5,000 years ago, a lot of people thought, this is too big for me. And so even Vyasa himself did condensed versions, abridgments of the Mahabharata that's stated in the Mahabharata. And so it's said that many sages begin with the story of Vasu because you have to go four generations back before Krishna and the Pandavas to actually understand the geopolitical military reality of India at that time. It's just like if, you're, if you live in India today, you know about Indian history, you know that India used to be a British colony. You know that before that it was ruled by the Mughals. You understand what, what partition was. You understand why there is a serious problem with Pakistan. And so on. And you even know Mahabharata. You know that thousands of years ago, India was by far, actually, the most advanced country in the world. And we even have documentation of this from a Greek ambassador to India to the court, the Mauryan court in Pataliputra is, is a Greek ambassador was named uh, 
just, uh, oh my God. I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little tired here, but Megosthenes. He wrote a book, which was a very popular book in the ancient world called Indica, which means about India. And so we know that India, for example, he says that unlike other countries, India doesn't have slavery. Unlike other countries, the government protects foreigners from any type of exploitation. There are animal hospitals in India. There are animal rights. There are human rights. He talks about, he says there's no slavery in India, unlike the rest of the world. He says that unlike the rest of the world, when there is a battle going on, military battle in India, no one ever injures a non-combatant. That was, I mean, the Romans, if a city resists, you burn the city down. You know, you rape the women, you, you know, kill the men, and everyone was doing that. So clearly India was morally and economically and culturally advanced far beyond other countries back then. And so, so if you know all these things about Bharat Varsha, ancient history, medieval history, modern history, that's just part of how you understand who you are, if you're an Indian, who you are and where you are and what it means to be Indian. So in the same way, when the Pandavas took birth in this world, they also knew the history of their land. All the things I'm telling you, they knew about this. And you can't... So it, it's not a question of writing just some little abridgment to look at the Mahabharata characters. You have to be able to see the world through their eyes. You have to see the world the way the Pandavas saw it. And you can't see through their eyes unless you know the history. It's just like I can't see through your eyes if you're Indian unless I know something about Indian history. And sort of the assumption I'm making is that these are real people who acted like normal people. So to give one example, when, uh, when uh, Abhimanyu is killed at the Battle of Kurukshetra and Arjun makes his terrible vow that he's going to kill Jayadratha, who kept the Pandavas out of the Kuru army. But the obvious question is, the point is, this makes no sense. It makes no sense. Jayadratha certainly had done that, but what about the people that actually killed Abhimanyu? Arjun's not angry at them at all. In fact, he couldn't care less about them. So what's, I mean, it's just, that's not the way normal people behave. If God forbid, if someone kills a person's only child, Abhimanyu is the only child of, of Subhadra. And, of course, and of Arjun with Subhadra. Why is Arjun completely unconcerned about the people that actually killed his son? Or, for example, the Pandavas when they have to spend one year incognito in the forest. How did they do that? Because the Mahabharata specifically says they gave away their horses and chariots and they walked. We know from Indian history, whether it's Mahabharata or Chanakya, that India, like all great countries, was full of spies. They had very advanced, very developed networks, espionage networks. And then you find that throughout the Mahabharata. 
So if the Pandavas are trying to be incognito, how do you walk from point A to point B when everyone knows what point A is? How do you get to point B and no one knows it? What about the fact that Kurus had spies everywhere? And if everyone knows, then on this, as everyone did know, then on this day, the Pandavas go incognito, how do five, they're actually, in the literal sense of the English word, the Pandavas are demigods. They're actually, they took birth between gods and humans. How do you just walk into a town, these guys who are, you know, a little larger than everybody else, and very strong, and there's this, you know, incredibly beautiful lady, who's Draupadi, even though they're in disguise, how do you just walk into a town and no one notices it? And what was really going on with King Virata? Why did they choose the king? There's a reason why they chose the kingdom of Virat. They didn't just choose it for nothing. And that goes all the way back to the time of Vasu and his sons. You have to know where the kingdom of Virat comes from. It was founded by one of Vasu's sons, whose name was Matsya, and therefore was also called Matsyadesh. And Matsya's twin sister, and twins, even biologically, tend to be very close. Who is Matsya? The person who creates the kingdom of Matsya, or Virat, who is his twin sister? Satyavati. So all these things are going on, and how did the, and if you, and how did the Pandavas, and what about the fact that Virat, when the Pandavas go to the kingdom of Virat, King Virat had actually lost his power. His, his power had actually been usurped. Because Kichika was actually the power running the kingdom. That's why when Draupadi is being harassed by Kichika, and she says, I'm going to tell the king, Kichika just laughs and says, I run this kingdom. The king's afraid of me. And it's true. Even when Kichika is killed by Bhima, and then the you know his followers are, are going to you know burn his body in the funeral fire, and they want to throw Draupadi into the fire so that she'll go to Kichika, and Draupadi's desperate, and she runs to the king, Mirat, and says, Save me, and the king is afraid even to oppose the followers of Kichika. Kichika, by the way, who is the brother of, Vasu, of Virat's wife. So not only was the king afraid of Kichika, he was even afraid of Kichika's followers when Kichika was dead. And so the fact that the Pandavas chose that kingdom is related to the political situation in Virat. It's related to the fact that Satyavati's twin brother founded the kingdom. There's all these things going on. There's all these things going on, and uh, so that's what we're doing. That's what I'm doing. So we're reconstructing. Thank you. Um, I know it's really late there. It must be close to midnight. Yeah, I, I better go. So uh, thank you. It's actually after midnight. So thank you all very much. It's a real pleasure to meet you, and uh, my thanks to my dear god sister, Naga Putney, who's a wonderful Vaishnavi. Thank you, Maharaj. Thank you, Maharaj. Thank, Thank you, you, Your Grace.
So I'll take your leave. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Hare Krishna. And uh, my thanks to all of you who are watching live here. Hare Krishna.